On January 6, 2021, thousands of Donald Trump supporters stormed the United States Capitol. They broke through windows. They attacked and hospitalized police officers. They beat one with an American flag. One insurrectionist was shot and killed by law enforcement as she tried climbing into the House chamber. The attack came after months of lies from then-President Trump and his supporters claiming that Joe Biden stole the election. He did not. On December 19th, Trump tweeted, Big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there, will be wild. The day of the attack, Trump held a rally not far from the U.S. Capitol where lawmakers were certifying Biden as the winner. We will never give up. We will never concede. We're going to walk down to the Capitol because you'll never take back our country with weakness. As the violence was taking place, Trump went on to Twitter. Instead of asking for calm, he tweeted, The 75 million great American patriots who voted for me, America first and make America great again, will have a giant voice long into the future. They will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape, or form. After immense pressure to speak out against the violence, Trump eventually made a video. This was a fraudulent election, but we can't play into the hands of these people. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. The social media platforms had enough. That video and his posts and his tweets were pulled. His accounts were shut down and remain so to this day. Twitter put out a statement that said, after close review of recent tweets from the at real Donald Trump account and the context around them, we have permanently suspended the account due to the risk of further incitement of violence. Twitter and Snapchat say he's done for good. And in a statement put out the afternoon of this podcast's publication, Facebook says Trump's account will be shut down for a full two years until January 6, 2023. The impact, however, has been substantial. Zignal Labs, a California-based research firm, showed that in the immediate days after Trump's banishment, misinformation about election fraud went down a whopping 73%. On the flip side, data compiled by Newswhip shows social media interactions about Trump are down 91% from January 6th, when he was booted, to May 3rd. The power these social media platforms have to remove someone has raised a lot of questions and a lot of anger, particularly from the right side of the political spectrum, who feel they are being targeted unfairly. They claim their First Amendment rights are being violated. There's even a new law in one state to stop social media sites from deplatforming politicians. But is this a First Amendment issue? Is it an ethical issue? Is it a larger problem with the way in which we as a society now choose to dialogue with one another? In today's episode, we talk with a constitutional law expert. We talk with a social media expert. Both will give us their thoughts on what's happening, what it means, and where we may be going from here. I'm Nick Lefebvre. This is Alone at the Desk. Alone at the Desk with Nick Lefebvre, a podcast by an average middle-aged guy who just happens to be a TV news anchor. We talk about the exciting and boring parts of life, the industry, and life in the industry. And we cover some important stories along the way. Brought to you by 13 On Your Side News in Grand Rapids, Michigan. 
If you mention the First Amendment to someone, most have a general idea of what it says. They think it means you have freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Beyond that, things get a bit murky. There are actually five points in that amendment, including religion, the press, peaceable assembly, and petitioning the government for a redress of grievances. But the core that we spend most of our time talking about, of course, is freedom of speech. The idea that Congress will pass no law restricting the freedom of speech. This is retired constitutional law professor Devin Schindler. The first thing that's going to jump out at you, the First Amendment says Congress. What about the states? What about local municipalities? The court has ruled over the years that the word Congress really means government. It's called the process of incorporation. So the first thing we have to do is take out the word Congress and put in the word government. So at a broad stroke basis, it stands for the proposition that government cannot unreasonably restrict speech. We'll get to that bit about Congress meaning government in a minute. First, most people don't stop to realize that every right we have has limits. We have the right to drive a car, but that can be taken away if you break the law too often. Even our right to live can be taken away with the death penalty. Schindler says it's the same with speech, even though the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law. If you read that literally, government couldn't do things like ban child pornography, because that's a form of speech. If you read that literally, government couldn't ban things like imminent incitement or fighting words. And so again, pretty early on in our constitutional history, the court said, well, when the Constitution said no law, it didn't really mean no law. Government needs some ability to regulate speech in order to have a civilized society. And so over the decades, there's been this constant balancing act, Nick, between the desires of the founders to prevent government from restricting free speech and the needs of running a civil society, which has led to a number of compromises and some very, very unique holdings. Uh, it is a, a sui generis, incredibly important, complicated area of constitutional law. Back now to Congress shall make no law, to meaning government shall make no laws, because already one state has taken action against social media sites banning or limiting politicians. On May 24th, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a staunch ally of former President Trump's, signed a bill into law that would severely penalize platforms like Twitter and Facebook for deplatforming elected officials and candidates in the state. And remember, Trump's new permanent home address is Mar-a-Lago. Social media sites could be fined up to $250,000 per day for violating that law. Okay, so here's the brass tax question. Is Facebook and or Twitter violating someone's free speech rights when they limit or ban them from posting, in your opinion? Categorically, no. Because of that first word, Congress shall make no law. The First Amendment and the Bill of Rights only restrict actions by the government. The government has to have taken an action of some form or other for the First Amendment to even be implicated. Facebook, Twitter, the various social media outlets that are out there are non-governmental. Therefore, they are not subject to the First Amendment. But historically, there are different opinions on that distinction, including those currently sitting on the Supreme Court. Well, it goes all the way back to a famous justice by the name of Justice Black, who said, we the court shouldn't be balancing free speech against government need because the founders already did the balance for us. They wrote the words, no law. And so I would call those First Amendment absolutists. 
the idea that the First Amendment means what it says. It's more of a textualist approach, uh, looking at the text of the document. And the balancing's already been done by the founders, that, that the court should not be in the business of creating new forms of unprotected speech. Shouldn't be in the business of upholding laws that restrict speech because the Constitution says what it says. There are also one jurist in particular, Justice Thomas, who has argued that the First Amendment does not apply to the states, that the states are free to do whatever they want to in terms of restricting speech. It simply acts as a limit on Congress. Schindler says there's also currently one wild card on the bench. Trump nominee Neil Gorsuch, who's written a number of opinions that take what Schindler calls a very absolute textualist approach. What he's going to do about the First Amendment is not entirely clear because there hasn't been a big First Amendment case that really goes to that issue yet. But certainly, uh, as we see the court becoming, uh, I hate to say the word more right word leaning, you know, I don't like that phraseology, but let's just say as it becomes more in uh, more textless judges on it, more originalist justices, it's entirely possible that we are going to see fewer First Amendment protections as time goes on. There's another angle to this lawsuit. Generally, when people think of the First Amendment, they think they can say whatever they want. In this case, government, specifically Florida, is telling these private companies that they must carry speech. They must allow the ideas and words of all politicians and candidates to be disseminated through their platforms. Schindler says that brings up something called the forced speech doctrine. Coincidentally, also something that came to light in a case out of Florida. Well, isn't it curious that that happened in Florida, given that the leading case in this area, Miami Herald, came from Florida. Let me tell you about the Miami Herald case. Back in the day, there was a statute, Florida, of course, that said if a newspaper publishes an article critical of a politician, they had to give the politician the same amount of space in the same location to reply. So if I wrote an editorial criticizing President Biden, the newspaper had to give President Biden equal space to respond. And the idea was fairness, and we want all voices to be heard and all of this sort of thing. Uh, the court struck that law down, excuse me, struck that law down in basically record time, saying you can't force people to speak. It's called the forced speech doctrine. That government cannot, you have a right under the First Amendment not only to speak and to express your opinions, but you also have the right to not associate with opinions with which you disagree. So if I'm a mall owner and I decide to let feed the whales and save the whales in to you know, hand out uh, brochures and raise a little money in my mall, I don't have to let in next week the let's kill all the whales, Inc. A terrible analogy, but you get the point. I get to pick and choose the ideas with whom I agree. You can't require, uh, if, if I'm a strong social warrior, my business is very socially conscious, you can't force me to allow the KKK in. We, given, sorry, given what you said earlier, though, about judges like Thomas, is this not the exact type of case that you think might go up before the high court at some point? Um, I don't see any real desire on this particular court to get rid of the forced speech doctrine because it plays into the current bakers, candlestick makers and marriage equality, gay marriage cases because this argument that I should not be forced to associate with ideas with which I disagree is driving a lot of those cases. I should not be forced to make a, you know, Larry and David get married cake because I'm a homophobe. Um, 
because it, it's forcing me to express an idea with which I disagree. And the court has shown, we don't have a case directly on point yet, but the court has basically shown that, yeah, that, that, that argument has some traction still. So there's this odd connection here between those cases. Ultimately, Schindler does not see the new Florida law surviving. I don't, not under the Miami Herald precedent. It, okay. it, I think it's pure politics, uh, unless the court throws a real curveball at me. And I have to say, Nick, in all honesty, I'm not batting 95% anymore in my fantasy league, my Supreme Court fantasy league. So my batting average is down a bit. I will, full disclosure, but this principle of no force speech has been with us for so long and is so heavily ingrained. And a lot of cases depend on this notion. So let's pause here and assume for a moment that Facebook and Twitter and all other social media platforms can legally ban, limit, or de-platform whomever violates their terms of service. Is it still the right thing to do? Is it the ethical thing to do? That's a good question. This is Dr. Timothy Penning. He's a professor of public relations and marketing in the Grand Valley State University School of Communication and, full disclosure, was one of my professors in my master's program. He says banning people depends on the context and content of what they're saying. So the law will talk about that too. A lot of law needs to be content neutral. There needs to be a, a fairly applied principle. So if somebody is inciting violence, and we've heard those terms recently, if, if the content could lead to harm to other people, there is an ethical obligation to do no harm and not to facilitate doing harm. What we've seen though, in my opinion, is you can stretch that ethical principle too far. And in the name of ethics, you are silencing people and it is unethical to squelch someone's voice, even if unpopular, and it's unethical to prejudge. Penning brings up the very recent example of Facebook, which at one point started scrubbing all posts that suggested or said COVID-19 was manufactured in a Chinese lab. Science, public opinion, and news reporting have all now come around to the fact that we just don't know, and it may be a possibility. In fact, the Biden administration, after stopping a Trump-era investigation into that theory, just started its own 90-day inquiry, and Facebook is now allowing those posts again. So they switched. In the interim, there was a harm to society in that we did not have a robust discussion of people's opinion, civilly presented, rationally articulated. It was just banned. I think that is unethical. One of the big problems with social media is how fast not just false information can spread, but dangerously false information. I brought up to Dr. Penning the example of Pizzagate. The lie was spread around by right-wing conspiracy theorists that a pedophile ring was being run by Democrats out of a pizza shop in Washington, D.C. A man actually traveled from North Carolina to investigate and wound up firing a gun inside the restaurant. No one was hurt, but a conspiracy theory spread on social media almost got people killed. And we've always, you know, at a university, you know, an intellectual people, we've always been taught, and we've lost some of that recently, that it doesn't matter if you agree with the opinion. What you need to understand is that the more opinions that come out, if they're bad opinions, they'll die on the vine, right? But the problem now is it's unmediated, immediate mass distribution of ridiculous things that are nevertheless believed by large swaths of society. So, so that's a new problem we have. 
Many have pointed out that Trump and other politicians are treated differently even by Twitter's own standards. Twitter feels the public has a right to know what they're saying, sometimes regardless of how ugly or false it is. And platforms struggled with this. Before they banned Trump, they flagged his posts, saying they weren't true or in dispute, or they linked to fact checks. But conservatives still don't think these practices were or currently are being applied fairly. Because there are other world leaders. I mean, the argument was the Ayatollah Khomeini was saying Israel should be wiped off the bat. Never challenged. Um, I think Justin Trudeau in Canada said something kind of objectionable. And people are saying, you know, that why that? And so there was kind of this very hyper-polarized attitudinal basis about Donald Trump that may have led to that. So Maxine Waters comes up a lot. She was never banned. Nancy Pelosi, never banned. Uh, a lot of people on the left, um, including some people in media on the left, never banned. So, and the problem is it becomes fuel for the complaint that conservatives are mistreated. And they largely are. I mean, there, there aren't... a the media is overwhelmingly liberal. If you look at studies and data of the ideology of reporters, right? Now there is conservative media emerging and there are a lot of media that do maintain a pretty good objective tone. But if you're gonna ban, you have to make it uniformly um, applicable. I think a better strategy, again, John Stuart Mill, let people say you know, disparaging things, upsetting things and let it die on the vine in the broader public sphere. It's a similar philosophy mentioned by Schindler. The underlying theory uh, explicated by a number of jurists, but most famously by Justice Holmes, is that the First Amendment protects the marketplace of ideas. The idea that the best search for the truth is to let it all in and then let people hear all sides of the debate. Let them hear the nasty stuff. Let them hear stuff they want to hear. And then we, the people, can take in all the speech, including highly offensive speech, and that will help us come to the truth. So can these platforms restrict and ban anyone, presidents or otherwise, who violate their terms of service? The prevailing thought is yes, but is it the best way for them to go about it? That's a lot more cloudy, even by people who know the law, communication, and ethics very well. Been doing this for 50 years, and you know I've seen these this exact debate play out in other realms, but including newspapers. I've seen this uh, same basic fight uh, in the world of broadcast media. Well, now it's time for us to look at the internet. Okay. Same arguments, same ideas, same solutions, which in the case of the Miami Herald were unconstitutional solutions. Let the marketplace find its own level. This has been Alone at the Desk with Nick LaFave. My thanks to Devin Schindler and Dr. Timothy Penning for taking part this week. If you'd like to hear more of our episodes, just go to 13onyourside.com slash podcasts. You can also find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. And you can find me at twitter.com slash nicklafave or facebook.com slash nicknews. And you can email me at nicklafave at 13onyourside.com. Thank you for listening.